0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of the St John's Politics Podcast, Politicised. I'm Ian Collingwell
1: and I'm Bruce Potter
0: and we are two A-level politics students from St John's School, Leatherhood. Today we'll be discussing our top picks for the top three Prime Ministers of all time. So Bruce, what's your third and second place?
1: So my third place uh, for Prime Ministers would be Clement Hatley. Uh, he did a lot of great things mm-hmm. during his time in office, So he established the NHS and introduced a welfare state. Uh, Free medical care was available to everyone for the first time ever. So this is a major uh, move forward in the UK. Uh, The NHS greatly improved the health of the nation with a fall in diseases like tuberculosis and a decline in infant deaths.
0: Uh, I mean, that's it's an interesting uh, pick to have him all the way down in third. but So I disagree with you on that
1: one. Well, I'd say he's a bit higher. You're going to have to wait for who's number two and number
0: one. So um, for my number three, I've gone with Tony Blair. Um, I'd say his, his reinventing of the Labour Party to make it an actually electable body, um, which was swiftly undone by Jeremy Corbyn in, in 2019. But his his reinventing of the Labour Party and, and New Labour, especially, was a, a masterstroke of, of policy. Um, the introduction of a, a minimum wage, especially, increasing public spending on healthcare and education, and the, the devolution of power in Scotland and Wales, just really helped to, to make the UK a sort of, I'd say, a freer nation. And especially with the, the devolution of power in, in Scotland and Wales, you get the Scottish Assembly and the Welsh Assembly, they are uh, able to pick their own leaders, can elect their own representatives. I mean, you'd say that's a you know makes those countries far more democratic and gives them a bigger say in, in British policy making, as well as the control of their own lives. So I'd say there's sort of there's a lot of good things that that Blair especially did. Um, foreign policy again, very successful foreign policy.
1: Well, you say that, but uh, he invaded Iraq. The, it was Europe, the end of his time in office, which was a massive. Uh, the Iraq
0: War may have been a uh, slight blunder. However, it did keep the Americans sweet, and that was integral to, to the UK's economy at that point, especially with sort of policy making being, being really, really crucial. I mean, what you've got to understand here is that the Soviet Union just collapsed back sort of 10 years ago, 10, 10 15 years before this happened. And so you've got the Russian state and the Russian Federation on the rise, right, and good good deals with the Americans at this point was absolutely crucial to to British foreign policy. Without that kind of stability that was provided through America, you're in a real trouble with stuff like you know the the possibility of invasions by by Soviets and and the Russians into Iraq. You can have another puppet war where you've got, you know, the Russian bloc propping up um, poor poor leadership in Middle Eastern countries. So I think the Iraq war, while it wasn't a good thing, still shows Blair's amazing foreign policy and the way that he was able to control foreign policy in order to control international relations.
1: Well, it's an interesting perspective, but the Iraq war isn't his only uh, blunder. He's done lots of bad things in his reign, I think. Uh, just to name a few. He created a false economy, he persuaded the the young to do pointless degrees, he convinced the gullible that we should do more European, he opened the floodgates to immigration, he gave the SNP more power by giving Scotland devolution, Uh, he created zero-hour contracts.
0: So I'd say with um... With a lot of things, especially on the on the immigration standpoint and on the you know the useless degrees, as you put it, standpoint, um, I think giving people power over their own destinies is is how I classify that. So you know, giving power, giving people the power to to have a higher education standard. So the degrees, even if they are useless, it still highlights a level of um, a level of higher education, which I believe that everyone in this country should have. Because you know who doesn't want to have a higher educated population to, to make a more effective work Yes,
1: but if this higher, if you know that this degree is going to lead them nowhere, and if they studied something else, they would get further in life and pursue a uh, better life path uh, with more uh, better living standards.
0: But would you not say that the freedom to do whatever you please will not be a, an integral part of the foundation of this country? I mean, especially with. Regards to uh, you know education, and also I'd like to just pick up on your immigration point. Uh, more workers coming into the economy is is normally not a bad thing. I mean, especially given that you know a lot of a lot of workers coming from economic migrants, specifically coming from Poland and, and sort of Eastern European countries, will work jobs that traditional British people will not want to do. So. Uh, for the last few years with Brexit there's been a lot of talk around you know people don't want to go into fields and pick strawberries right and that is a job that was being done by economic migrants from the EU and from sort of old block countries, old eastern Bloc countries in Eastern Europe. So I don't see a problem necessarily with allowing those people in if they're going to play a large economic role such as you know the people who are Propping up our agriculture industry and doing taking those sort of lower paid jobs because they're much better than jobs they would get in their own countries. However, they are contributing positively to the economy.
1: Well, I think if there's already unemployment in the UK, then shouldn't we prioritise getting these people into jobs and uh, making their lives better instead of uh, taking more people in, so these people are left stranded. Away from a job uh, that's taken up by someone else who's just coming to the UK through their loose immigration policy.
0: Yeah, I think employment is always a big, big part of picking a good plan for this minister. Um, loose immigration is is on normally not a bad thing because it takes away from jobs that British people don't want to do. I think if you offered someone who is sort of in between jobs, especially as I was talk- as you were talking about earlier, the um, the, the higher education and, and degrees people aren't going to take a job that they don't want if they've got that level of higher education. So you're not going to take a job, you know, picking strawberries in a field if you've got a history degree and you're looking to become a history teacher, right? You're not going to take a job that you don't want and that's again another social security that has been afforded to us in this country, which is you don't need to take whatever job you get. So I think that economic migrants are, are a good thing yeah, with but, the open uh, policies. The it's
1: success. not just lower skilled people that come into the UK. It's high skilled doctors and teachers, uh, which there are already a lot of in the UK. And you don't want uh, the doctors and teachers that were uh, that um, already in the UK to suffer and not get a job because of the increased competition because of these people coming to the UK? I think
0: they are few and far between, but you know, I mean even basing on on the foreign policy of someone like Sue Braverman and someone like um, Priti Patel, I mean they're introducing much higher sort of uh, quotas for, for immigrants and especially economic migrants. And also the shortage of doctors and nurses currently in this country I think it was about uh, the Conservatives said that they had introduced 15,000 new roles in nursing a few days ago. Uh, However, does that replace the 40,000 nurses that we lost? Most of those being economic migrants. So, you know, do we want to have an understaffing crisis, or do we want to just let our borders open a bit more to those higher skilled workers and the lower skilled ones as well? Well,
1: respectfully. We're talking about a shortage of workers at the moment compared to uh, Tony Blair's uh, Rook says it's completely different. But uh, we'll agree to disagree. Who's your number two here?
0: Uh, My number two is Harold Wilson, Uh, another another Labour PM, this time in the 60s. Um, I'm picking him in my number two spot, mostly for social policy. So his decriminalisation of homosexuality, It was only male, but it's still a huge step in the the civil rights of LGBT people. Um, The relaxing of divorce laws, abolishing capital punishment and theater censorship, liberalization of birth control and abortion law, especially. um, And also his passing of various legislation that addressed race relations and racial discrimination. This is massive landslide civil rights legislation that was passed by Wilson. And I don't think you can say anything negative on Wilson simply because he was, you know, such a such a revolutionary social prime minister.
1: Uh, no, I think I agree. His social policies are were one of a kind. Uh, they were massive strides forward in the social policies of the UK, and I think we're very thankful for what he's done. But on the economic side of things, and uh, his pursuit of the 400 million pound deficit in the British economy. Uh, I think we can agree that his economic ideas were not as good as his social ideas.
0: Well, his uh, his economic policy was always interesting. I think he well well controlled um, stuff like the the economy, especially sort of nationalisation. Um, so, re-nationalisation of British steel, he did, and that was in. Um, in 1967, with the Iron and Steel Act, especially in order to keep the um, the left wing, the radical left of the Labour Party in check. But also, we're talking about you know Wilson's later terms, in which these problems are already a massive issue. Therefore, I don't think it's really fair. I, given that I'm taking Wilson's first uh, first term as the as the big sort of talking point. So you know. I mean, you can look at um, unemployment rates as well, given that that's you know, been a big talking point. Um, between 2.5 and 1.6% of the economy were unemployed. I mean, I just think that's a phenomenal number, you know. I don't, I don't really think that you can take that away from it, um, especially stuff like Zero Bank as well. So he opened a bank for the working class, so people who wouldn't normally have bank accounts, um, made it far more accessible really successful bank i mean it survived until 2003 um and then especially council housing as well he built 1.3 million council houses as a social safety net
1: uh, well for a moment let's just talk about wilson i think he was very indecisive about the economy he didn't want deflation he didn't want inflation either so um he was very indecisive uh, he didn't have key leadership skills that other Prime Ministers had, like for example Winston Churchill, uh, who I've got on my number two spot. And uh, there was frequent frequent bullying of the government by trade unions who were often striking or protesting. And wouldn't you not agree that a stronger government is better uh, to govern in these circumstances?
0: Well, I believe that um, on, the, on the topic of trade unions especially, that you know, trade unions should not be seen on as a bad thing. I think the term bullying of the government is is a strong one, given that trade unions strike for workers' rights. Now, what you can see as bullying is maybe in the later terms of Wilson and uh, and by definition Callaghan, in which the trade unions really grew a temper, and you know you've got the the winter of discontent and, um, and the three day week, which is where the trade unions really really took over. But I think. The trade unions were, you know, and still are a strong part of of British workers' rights. And I don't think you can look at them and and say, you know, that they they bully the government, they take away power from the government. I think that people protesting for for better pay and for their own rights should be, you know, actively encouraged.
1: Well, uh, although trade unions are good for the people inside the trade unions, everyone else outside the union suffers. Let me give you an example, Uh, any test workers are striking at the moment, many doctors, uh, and paramedics and nurses and ordinary people are suffering, operations are being postponed. How can you possibly justify this in a good economy?
0: Well, would you not say, Bruce, that, um, you know, especially with, with doctors and nurses, I mean, this is the first strike ever in the history of the union. So clearly, you'd say that there is an issue with the current government rather than an issue with the trade unions, because they've been forced to this extreme measure. I mean, you know, the fact that it was such an overwhelming vote—I think it was 94% of, uh, of all nurses and all doctors decided to vote on this on this strike—and so I think it really highlights the, the sort of the way that you know, people haven't been properly treated for such key workers to have taken such a sort of, such a mainstream stance of, of strike action. Because, I mean, this is a stance that you see taken by railway workers, not key workers such as the NHS. And, you know, I mean, personally, I think they deserve their demands. I think higher pay should be deserved. And I don't think that an NHS nurse should go, on to, the, um, should go to the food bank
1: yeah. You're, obviously, uh, yeah. we need better, con- uh, better conditions for our nurses and doctors, and uh, I think we can both agree on that. Yeah. Uh, well, your number two, Bruce, so uh, Winston Churchill. My well, number two, Winston Churchill.
0: I'd say that Winston Churchill was a brilliant wartime prime minister, in as much as he was a you know a very strong figurehead, and that's what the nation needs in wartime. You need someone who will, you know hold your nation's morals high, hold your nation's fabric of, of being, and especially keep that morale high. However, as soon as you come into that, that post term of which he served, I think that can be seen as a complete failure. I don't think he built off of what Attlee did, and I don't think he was a very successful Prime Minister, Post you know, his World War
1: II tenureship. So what are your, what are your arguments for him? Okay, well, Churchill is obviously best remembered for uh, leading the Britain through the war successfully. He was famous for his inspiring speeches uh, and for his refusal to give in, even when things were going badly. Many consider him to be the greatest prime minister ever because many people believe that no other prime minister could have done this he made such inspiring speeches, including his never surrender speech. Uh, and the question is whether the soldiers would have been able to keep fighting without these uh, inspiring speeches from Churchill. So he definitely had a massive part to play in winning the war, which was incredibly influential in making his uh, reign positive one. Well, his time in power, especially in war, he was the best prime possible Prime Minister. I think we can both agree. After the war he wasn't so good, but uh w- during the war, he was the best prime minister.
0: Would you not say, however, that um looking given that he has you know obviously two terms disconnected by one in the middle, um would you not say that Churchill you really need to judge him on on his basis of sort of his his wartime prime ministerial position, yes, was important. However, was he really that good post-war? Did he just sort of sit on Atlee's policy and not change it? I mean he was still a he was still a colonialist and so you know he didn't like Atlee's decolonisation of the, of the British Empire and he he was he was a real sort of imperialist so he thought that, that the British Empire should remain. But can you really justify having someone like that in a in a modern era as we call it after the, after World War Two, going forward with you know social reform? Would you want someone like that who is so stuck to the past?
1: But can you really justify uh, not having Churchill? So not having uh, possibly not winning the war possibly? Who's uh, your number one? You
0: I would say that, that Clement Attlee would have to be number, my number one. Um, just the enormous impact he had post war. You know, the NHS introduced in 1948, uh, the National Insurance Act and the National Assistance Act, council health building subsidies, uh, he reformed trade union legislation, and the national park system was established. And obviously, you know, employment being a massive thing, we've, we've talked about full employment under his tenureship, um, and a mixed economy to a Keynesian policy, I'd say. It just it makes him a really attractive pick for number one. Um, just the complete rebuilding that he had of of Britain after the Second World War, in in a way that Churchill. I mean, yes, he saw it as well through the war, but you can see that Churchill can't possibly be on that list because as soon as the war ended, he was he was gone. He was out. He was replaced by Atlee, and so Atlee, you know, as as well as his social reform. Uh, and his you know, full employment, I, I'd say his economic policy is a Keynesian policy. Just to inject money into the into the British economy in order to try and stimulate growth after the Second World War was a massive success.
1: Yeah, I mean personally, I can't fault Attlee. He was a great Prime Minister. Uh, his two major achievements, full employment by nineteen fifty, and the establishment of the NHS, were really important uh, for the UK. Yeah. And I think that uh, he has to be in the top three, but whether he's higher than Winston Churchill, who got the UK through the war, uh, is a different story.
0: So who's your, uh, who's your number one pick, Bruce?
1: My number one Prime Minister is Margaret Thatcher.
0: That is a that is very controversial and interesting pick, Bruce.
1: Why, why is that? So I think she transformed the city of London. Within six months of Margaret Thatcher's election, foreign capital flooded into London, because of uh, she deregulated the stock exchange, uh, she privatised lots of UK companies, for example Jaguar, British Telecom (BT), and British Gas. Yeah. And she uh, caused trade unions to lose numbers, which you could believe uh, is a negative of her time in office. But uh, it made the rest of the public thankful.
0: Would you not say that through her uh, her immense pushing of you know, destructive structural employment policy, that she was a, a destructive influence to have on the British economy. I mean, you've got to look at the, the unemployment spikes, I think it was something like 14% unemployment at one point, when she just completely demolishes British industry. You know, the coal mines, yes, you can argue that they're becoming outdated, right? But you've still got to look at the issues of just how many people were employed there, and also she didn't push a social reform in order to get those people re-educated for re-employment. She just sort of closed closed down the coal mines, closed down the trade unions, and didn't allow those people a really a second chance that was held by the government. So I think when you when you look at Thatcher, you can say that her privatisation was good, and you can say that her management of the economy was good. The structural unemployment that was caused. and the the sort of irreparable damage that was done to that generation of workers, especially with no offering of of a second chance, I think that comes over you know the, maybe the slight economic good that, that privatization may be achieved.
1: Yes but uh, in the long in the short run you could argue that but in the long run of, under prime ministers such as John Mayer and Tony Blair, Unemployment severely decreased and uh, many contribute this to Margaret Thatcher's privatisation. This certainly created lots of jobs uh, that were unstable in public hands. And uh, in the long run, we can argue that this increased investment into the economy was a great step forward in the UK economy.
0: I don't really believe it's fair, though, to judge the impact of a Prime Minister post-term, especially if it's so long after. I mean, you're judging, you know, Thatcher's term ended in, in 1990, 1991, and you're judging her off of, you know, Blair, whose term started in 2003.
1: Well, you can see by towards the end of her reign or her time in office, unemployment was decreasing, and that may have been due to privatization policies. So the long run uh, effects of this policy may have uh, only been starting to come to light. So after her uh, time in office, these uh, effects were really brought light, brought to light.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting argument to say that, you know, especially her economic policy, like the policy of privatization, really brought everything to life. However, I. I personally believe that it did more harm than good. And so I don't think that it's really a sort of fair justification.
1: Uh, So that's it for us this episode. We've been Bruce Potter and Ewan Collingbourne. And you've been listening to the St John's Politics Podcast, Politicise.